What I was going through around the writing of Downward Spiral was not knowing who I was anymore. I'd seen myself as the kid in the bedroom listening to records, and I wasn't sure who the guy on stage was. <laughs> that was getting distorted and becoming accentuated in caricature of self, I think. Add that to someone ill-equipped to deal with attention or fame. I've always had a sadness and a sense of abandonment, I think, haunting me and never feeling like I fit in anywhere and always feeling like an outsider. It's not rational, it just happens often. Maybe I'm the guy that needs a couple beers. I don't give a or whatever it might be, to understand who I am. And, oh, now I feel better, you know. Now I feel more confident in this new outfit I've got on. It was a ripe scenario for your personality to distort. presented by the good people at the Podbelly Network. My fellow Americans, we are fortunate to be alive. They need them to protect us from the number one killer in history. Protect us from the central university. A study on the Like we always do about this time. Boom. All right, everybody. Welcome to episode 320 of the Orange Jacob Do America podcast. I'm your host in the place to be, Mr. Jacob Pete. And sitting right across from me is the brown recluse, Mr. Art Trail. Art, say hello to the millions. And millions. What the fuck is up? Guys, go to cavemancoffee.com. Check out their entire inventory. They got the coffee beans. They got the hibiscus tea. They got the cacao butter. Everything your heart desires to wake your ass up. Um, use promo code America at checkout to receive 15% off. Um, it's summertime, so like check out their hats. They got Caveman Coffee hats. They got Caveman Coffee shorts. They have those really popular like uh, sweatpants cutoff kind of shorts with Caveman Coffee logo on it. Really? Like like Daisy Dukes? Like Daisy Dukes, bro. Get your cheeks out with some Caveman Coffee, get your, baby. Get your cheeks out, bro. Uh, and uh, use promo code America at checkout to receive 15% off. Tag us. Tag them. Uh Shows that you care. We appreciate it. They appreciate it. And speaking of sponsors, guys, make sure you head on over to superapparel.com where the great and powerful Nicole Smith-Bosch has put together an illustrious array of merchandise for your consumption pleasure. So uh, check out the store. Um, buy or Put everything that you want, love, and desire in your cart. 
Fourth uh, of July is this Tuesday, so by the time you, you listen to this episode or watch it on the YouTube or whatever, right, we're celebrating our nation's 255th or whatever fucking birthday it is or whatever, right? Uh, so, you know, in the spirit of America, why don't you give somebody that you love, want, or desire some super apparel? But before you guys hit checkout, I need every, everyone to enter promo code Art and Jacob, and Nicole will give you 10% off your entire purchase. But Art. Damn, I can barely talk, dude. Damn, dude. Yeah, I'm losing my voice already, man. Talked about a lot of stuff, a lot of pins on uh, the Patreon episode. Yeah, so um, my voice might, you know, dissipate, you know, halfway through this one. But, Art, we're not here to talk about my dissipating voice or the 4th of July. Art, what are we here to talk about today? We're here to talk about, I think I think one of our favorite, at least one of my favorite albums, I think you would probably agree, mm-hmm. one of our favorite albums, one of the... In my opinion, one of the greatest albums ever made. 100%. I think when we did um, our our favorite albums of all times list, I think this was like my number three or something like that on like my all-time favorite albums of all time. Ladies and gentlemen, The Downward Spiral by Nine Inch Nails. And I'm glad this is the what you meant the topic to be uh, because as I texted you earlier in this week, I said, hey, are we doing The Downward Spiral, the album? Or, and I guess there's like some murder mystery <laughs> too. Cause like when uh-huh. I did like my research, you know, I like to, you know, listen to different podcasts and whatnot. And I kept putting the downward spiral and I had to put the downward spiral album uh, because there's some murder mystery too called the downward spiral. So oh, yeah. I don't know, maybe that's a, a topic that will happen. Maybe that will <clears throat> never happen. I don't know. But just to differentiate, it is nine inch nails is yeah, the downward yeah. spiral. Yeah, I mean, let's start. Let's start with a pretty simple question, I suppose. When was your first? What was your first experience? When was your first experience ever listening to this album? This album in particular. So I had already known about Nine Inch Nails previously because you know had like a hole and obviously, you know everything that followed that between Broken and whatnot like that. Like it lived on MTV kind of in the background. It was Nine Inch yeah. Nails. Trent Reznor wasn't the superstar that he is now or would become. Uh, with this album, but I was aware of Nine Inch Nails. Um, But listening to this album, it wasn't until, like, I was in high school and, like, Napster was a thing that I actually got to hear the entire album. And obviously the, you know, the main song, the big bad song that everybody, you know, gravitates toward closer, you know, I expected the whole album to be that. A lot of, you know, sounds that sound like closer, which it does, uh, but when I listened to it, it was in high school, and I remember thinking, like, man, I'm super disappointed in this album. But it was a lot like, you know, an acquired taste where it's just like you get addicted to the taste of it, where I'd come back and be like, you know what, I want to hear that song March of the Pigs again. I want to hear, uh, you know, uh, Reptile again. I want to hear Ruiner. I want to hear Heresy. Like, there was, like, little sounds that kept bringing me back for more. So, you know, I guess I would say, like, 2001. Mm-hmm ish like that's when i listened to it for the first time fast forward to 2023 like there's still little sounds and little nuances that i'm discovering that just keeps me coming back for more and i remember like in college like i had this big gap in between classes and at cal state i had to drive like 30 minutes to get out to cal state so i'd have like you know i would just be on campus for like four straight hours doing nothing and i remember listening to this album on my uh my Samsung iPod, <laughs> and I remember looking up st- like facts about it, and I, ne- I didn't know this, but it was actually a concept album, which like 
catapulted like my love for this album even more because I was like, oh, he's telling a coherent story. Yeah. Like this music is meant to be consumed as a whole, not like just in segments, song by song or whatnot. So mm-hmm. it's it again, you know, from the first time I probably heard it in its entirety in two thousand one till two thousand twenty three now, like it it just keeps getting better every time I hear it. So yeah, my question back to you is, what about you? Um, so pretty similar. Um, I. I had known about Nine Inch Nails from like the radio hits. I had like a whole closer was a big radio hit, um, but it wasn't until I think like my freshman year of high school or maybe sophomore year of high school, um, when my sister was dating her now husband, but you know then boyfriend, and like he was a big Nine Inch Nails fan. Like he he was all about Nine Inch Nails, and like you know I basically got like bombarded with like everything Nine Inch Nails up and up to that point, and. This album, obviously, Closter was on it, and I was just like, eh, I don't know how I feel about this band or whatever. And I started listening to this album. This album and, and The Fragile were definitely like the two albums that I like gravitated the most towards because um, they, they just sounded fresher, I guess. Um, but this album, I just remember, like, I remember, like, you know, thinking... This feels like a cohesive story, you know. Bef- and one of the things that I I love, and like now it's you know everybody knows it's pretty popular that it's it there's it's a concept album. But I I like the idea that it's a concept album, but it doesn't like spoon feed you like this happens and this happens <laughs> and this happens. I like that it's just kind of like the general gist of 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 chaos happening. And then what it's funny because you mentioned like that you've noticed things you know after all these years. Literally, as preparing preparation for this album, I listened to this album a few times this week, and like I noticed something I had never noticed about it before. And like I'll bring it up as we're recording it, or as we're you know recording this episode. Actually, I guess I could bring it up now. But um, like <laughs> you know, track by track, as it starts, like Mister Self Destruct, and it ends with Hurt, and all the tracks in between. There's like regular Trent singing voice where like you know you hear that in every Nine Inch Nails album nothing nothing too crazy, mm-hmm. but there's also this like underlying thing where like you hear him sing in a different voice where he uses a lot of distortion on his voice, and it almost feels like that's like a secondary character that's that appears throughout the album throughout the songs that, mm. and. I never noticed this before, but that voice becomes more and more and more present as the album goes on. When you first hear it on Mr. Self-Destruct, all you really hear him say in the background is, I am an insect. And it's just like kind of like distorted in the background. Once you get to the song, The Downward Spiral, it's the main character. It's the one saying like, you know, problems do have solution, you know? So much blood for such a tiny little hole. Like all those lines, like, is that's takes over as as the character like the that that distorted voice is now the lead singer yeah you go from and, edward norton to fucking tyler Durden. <laughs> yeah like <laughs> yeah, that yeah. becomes the the character that's telling the story now and like i never thought about that i knew it was a concept album and i always thought about it in that way but i never noticed how that voice appears more and more and more and more and more wow i didn't and, notice that yeah. and like i never i never even noticed that and like it almost feels like if it was a film, like the song Hurt, the final track on it, would just be like the closing credits of like the yeah. film itself. Like and it's it it's a really beautiful thing and you know, you know, it took me all these years now that like, you know, over twenty years of listening to this album 
to like finally realize like man there's i never noticed that that there's yeah. like he uses that technique more as the album goes on yeah it's so well thought out right yeah, yeah i i love it that was like a brand new thing but i guess you know to really kick it off and i don't want to spend too much time on this but because there's there's a whole documentary you can watch the defiant ones where they talk about this a little bit more in depth but Nine Inch Nails, obviously, this is not the first Nine Inch Nails album. There were ex- people who experienced Nine Inch Nails. Trent Reznor had been making music since, like, the early, mid-'80s with other bands, the Exotic mm. Birds. Finally starts his band, Nine Inch Nails, where he's basically a janitor working at TBT Records yeah. and being like, hey, can I just get some studio time in the middle of the night when no one's using it? And he basically makes a Pretty Hate Machine, which mm. is a pretty amazing album to, yeah. for a dude that's, like, basically in college and, like, just, like, Hey, can I just borrow the studio from like 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. and just makes that album in like the off hours and like becomes a hit, becomes yeah. like a radio hit, classic, yeah. classic, pretty much like stapled classic. Everybody was like saying like this sounds different, like downwards. I mean, uh, not downwards, but pretty hate machine does sound different than everything else at the time. It kind of sounds like the Depeche Mode, Depeche Mode vibe, but it also kind of sounds like like you know, other things that were happening around the time. It kind of has like a bit of a, like the Chicago grunge, not so much the Seattle grunge, like more of the smashing pumpkins things that was going on. There was that vibe going on. There was like the Pesh mode stuff going on in there. Like ministry, I would say a little skinny puppy in there. Yeah. Yeah. There's all kinds of like little things, but it very much sounds like nine inch nails. And it's, it's very, like very different. It almost, to me, it also has like tinges of like, Prince's Purple Rain, like yeah. where where it has like a little bit of like like sexuality, but it's kind of dark. It's mm-hmm. playful, but it's like, but at the same time, when you listen to it, it definitely does sound like this is Trent, very young and very like you yeah. know it, his first girlfriend, first breakup kind yeah, of thing. You it, know? it does sound like you know even like the 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 darker songs. You know he he plays with dark elements, but nothing like to the extreme that had not been done before. Mm-hmm. It, it definitely is a unique album. So you know to tell you a little bit more about what was going on, this album becomes a huge hit. TVT Records, which um, later on becomes its own thing. I think technically um, TVT Records is still around. Like now, I think Kendrick Lamar is a big thing. He has like Top Dog Entertainment, which he like does like a parent company. Like I think Kendrick kind of owns TBC records now, <laughs> but at the time it was kind of its own thing. And they just had jingles for like television shows and things mm-hmm. like that. It was nothing special going on there. Um, but they wanted Trent to be like the new Face. fucking dude. Like we want you to be the next rock star. You guys just went on tour as the opening act for guns and roses. Let's fucking do this. Let's just let's wild to think about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Like let's fucking pimp you out as much as we can. And, Basically, Trent Reznor was like, I kind of don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to be the next Depeche Mode. I don't want to be the next, like, pretty boy lead singer thing. That's not what I'm aiming for. I wanted more of a darker edge to this. And then one of the things that I don't think a lot of people knew know about this era of Nine Inch Nails is, yeah, he started surrounding himself with, like, darker and darker figures. Like, obviously, like, Marilyn Manson and him become kind of friends around this era. Mm-hmm. He becomes friends with the Pantera guys, and he wants like a heavier, like more in your face sound. Where it's like, I don't want that fuck, like fucking thing. Like, I, the tour was really successful because it was loud and aggressive. I wanna, I want that loud and aggressive sound to to go on. But TBT Records is like, we're not gonna put Broken Out, which is the follow up album. We're like, that's not what we want. We want you to do this more like the Pesh Mode sounding thing you did on your first album. 
Eventually, go watch the documentary to the Defiant Ones, but eventually he breaks the contract. I think Interscope Record is like, we'll just fucking release you from your contract. We'll pay all the fees. Just, you know, mm. we're going to let you do what you want to do. We're going to stay out of your hair, but we want this whole, like, creepy vampire thing you got going on. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, because they recognize the greatness. And Interscope Records, um, uh, you know, famously owned by Jimmy Iovine at this time in history. So we're talking about, like, 91, 92 uh, this is when Death Row Records, you know, becomes a thing. Dr. Dre just released, like, The Chronic. Also, you know, they picked up this guy um, from Oakland. Uh, they used to be in Digital Underground called Tupac Shakur. They started releasing his albums as well as a bunch of other great, you know, classic, you know, hip-hop albums. And, you know, later on it would be, like, No Doubt. And, you know, it would just go on. Like, Interscope, you know, was this powerhouse, obviously, Eminem, 50 Cent, like, all this yeah. shit or whatever, right? But they were this- Go watch fl- that documentary. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. <laughs> Pay the 14 bucks for HBO, goddammit. Uh, or you can hijack their satellite <laughs> signal <laughs> a couple episodes ago. Anyways- um, but it was like this fledgling uh, record company. Uh, but Jimmy Iovine, he just had like that ear for great talent. Obviously, Dr. Dre, probably the best hip-hop producer of all time. Yeah. He recognized the, you know, the greatness in Trent Reznor. You mentioned Prince earlier, uh, which is a great you know comparison because just like Prince, Nine Inch Nails, like it, it, in theory, it's a band. Uh, but it really is, it's another version of Prince where it's just like it's produced by, performed by, written by Trent Reznor, you yeah. know, just like Prince, you know, with all of his music. Yeah, there was other musicians in the background, but the lead for all of this was Prince. You know, the lead for all of this was Trent Reznor. So Jimmy Iovine saw that. Trent, you know, experiencing all the difficulties that he had with TVT Records where it's just like they were telling him what to do. And for a true artist, like Trent Reznor, you don't need that. And there was an interview Trent was um, giving MTV where he says, like, hey, like, we'll take care of everything, you know, the the music videos, uh, the promotion, the artwork or whatever. Like, just let us do our thing or let me do my thing, and, you know, we'll deliver a really good, solid project because we know what we're doing or Mm -hmm. I know what I'm doing. You don't don't have to baby us like, you know, other acts that are out there, you know, like fucking – I don't, I don't even know what, you know, comparison I can make. Like some, you know, Milli Vanilli type of thing. Yeah. You know, where we're I mean, there were other rock bands going on. Like if you were going to be a popular rock radio, this is right before like grunge really kicked off. So you still had like the 80s hair metal stuff going on. And I think he wanted to avoid that. He wanted something with like a darker, heavier edge. So eventually, you know, you know, Interscope, Jimmy Iovine makes it happen. Like you're on your own. Do what you, you want to You want to do what you want to do. We're going to let you do it. You're going to fucking do it how you want to do it. So what does he do? He fucking <laughs> buys the fucking Sharon Tate <laughs> murder house, <laughs> calls it Let Pig Studios, yeah, uh, which is a pretty dark thing. If you don't know about that, we we did cover the Manson murders, but yeah, in great detail where I put Art <laughs> and Maddie to sleep by telling you every <laughs> fucking intricate detail about that murder. Uh, but yeah, because you know the front door, you know, I believe it was. Oh, fuck, I forgot the name of her. But uh, she writes pig on the front door in Sharon Tate's blood, which doesn't come off. You know, they have to paint over it. Uh, but Trent labels the studio that they build inside the Sharon Tate mansion. Le, Le pig. pig. Yeah. You know, which, you know, is kind of a play on it, which is a theme throughout the album, like Piggy and March yeah. of the Pigs and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, he basically he basically brings all his bandmates in there. Starts at this time, he's hanging out with with Marilyn Manson and his band. They're basically he. That's like his first act. He wants to sign to his label because that was part of the deal. Like 
you want me? I want to start my own label. We'll call it Nothing Records. And he basically says, Manson's my first guy I'm bringing on board with me. Mm-hmm. And he basically has like this like house in LA, <laughs> murder house in LA where like all these like fucking, I don't want to say industrial rock guys, but like, I guess like gothy kids, like the edgier mm-hmm. kids from school are all like hanging out, partying, doing drugs. And it's basically a pretty toxic environment. Yeah. Like, I, I think at the time they probably didn't see it as a toxic environment because they're all much younger. You know, when you're in your early 20s, you probably don't, like, we all did shit like that. Oh, yeah. And if you had tons of money and, like, you're on, you were the opening act for Guns N' Roses, you'd probably be doing the same thing, too. Probably, yeah. And so, um, I right away, like, the thing that he, he decides to put out is Portrait of American Family. That becomes a hit. Marilyn Manson becomes, like, banned all over the fuck. Like, we're not putting this shit out. <laughs> he puts out his album broken which is like much heavier than mm. the than than pretty hate machine it is probably the heaviest nine Inch Nails album to this date it definitely has pantera influences hit here and there he was a huge pantera fan which i did not know that i guess mm-hmm. he's still friends with the pantera guys but trent is a big pantera guy and i think the great southern trend kill was actually recorded in uh the studio that trent would later on have in new orleans too yeah so, yeah yeah and i think he he did um he did record some stuff in the the stuff that he that he doesn't like. Was that the album that he did over there with Pantera or something? Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so yeah, so he basically he basically makes this like the stronghold in L.A. If you're gonna do like dark rock, industrial rock, whatever you want to call it, like it's gonna happen in this house. That's the epicenter. This is the mecca of that. Yeah, yeah. Which so, is crazy considering the history of that house. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he's he's doing this. They're recording all this great classic music. Like looking back at it, it's like, dude, already you have two um, classic rock albums in one house. And it's mirroring what's going on down the street with Death Row Records as well. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. And basically that's all happening. Eventually he does want to start work on the next full length album because really broken was just an EP and really he had the majority of that all like fleshed out ready to go is by the time they got to the house. But a couple of things are happening that broken tour, the, the album tour cycle for broken kind of created a rift between him and really his like, I don't want to say best friend in the band, but probably closest friend in the band, Richard Patrick, the guitar player. And it kind of became a rift because he wanted more of an influence in what the band was going to do. Like, you know, am I a full-time member of this band now? Like I, you know, we mm. we're living together. We're like best buds. Like mm. am I nine inch nails too? Or is nine inch nails just Trent Reznor? And I think looking back at it and Richard Patrick has talked about this, like re- looking back at it, it was a really douchey thing, but it was probably the most helpful thing to Richard Patrick where Trent Reznor goes like, if you want, if you want to have input, you should start your own band. And it's basically Richard Patrick took that as like a fuck, fuck you, you yeah. like that's pretty fucked up. Like I'm 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 basically making like minimum wage on this tour. We're opening up for Guns and Roses, and I'm making minimum wage on this tour, barely scraping by enough to like to like I should just go back to school, finish school, or like start my own band, like make more money doing that. Which eventually he does. He goes and starts his band Filter. He basically leaves Trent at that house, goes back to Ohio. Does his does the whole filter thing? And Trent's pretty hurt by all this. Yeah. <laughs> like so, like all right, your your best buddy guitar player has just left the band. You're kind of just there with like Manson and his crew, and like you know what what can you do? Mm-hmm. He does have his producer Flood at this point, which had been kind of in and out. Even though he is a producer, I don't want to say he's like not 
the traditional producer. He's almost like a session musician who like helps him write and mm. record music at this time period. Uh, but they start the beginnings of recording this album of the downward spiral. And I guess at this point, you know, we could start by like a track by track kind of thing. I don't want to go too deep into track by track, but there are some special things that start appearing on this track. Most notably, unlike the first two albums that he's put out, there's more samples, which is more of an industrial trait, I guess. Like, you know, this is the first time that he, he really starts using samples and track one right off the bat, Mr. Self-Destruct, you get hit with the most obvious sample. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe the movie is T A T X T H X eleven thirty eight. Yeah, which is you know the first ever um, George Lucas George Lucas movie. It's a dope ass sample. Actually, the first time I heard this album, I didn't know that was a sample. I was like, that just sounds dark as fuck. It dude. sounds like Trent beating up somebody. Yeah, yeah like it, with a baseball bat. It literally sounds like a snuff film. Like yeah, like it. It's pretty fucking dark, but at the same time, it, it like sets the tempo to like how fast the first song is gonna come at mm-hmm. you. Pretty genius way to start in the movie. I'm starting the movie. And I don't know. I, I view it as kind of like a. It is a movie. Yeah, yeah in kinda a way. Kind of like thing like that. But um, and it's like the title card. You know, like let's think of a movie like a Quentin Tarantino movie or like an old school like 50s or 60s movie, like where there's like this whole like musical sequence and you get like, directed by starring you know this guy or whatnot, right? I think of Django, right? Like we're like Django, and it's like yeah. you know Jamie Fox directed by Quentin Tarantino, edited by you know the yeah. X, Y, and Z or whatever, and that's what Mister Self Destruct was. And going back to what I said earlier, I used to hated the flow of this because it's like Mr. Self-Destruct is an awesome fucking song and it's like it just gets it speeds up more and more and more and then you hit Piggy and you're like oh wait that that feels discombobulated but like when you look at it it's just like Mr. Self-Destruct is like introducing you to that story like it's the prologue and then Piggy in a way is track one and you know and Mr. Self-Destruct is like you know the intro track yeah oh absolutely Absolutely, and as I mentioned this, uh, that's the first time you hear that, like, kind of distorted voice in the background. You start hearing these voices going, like, I am an insect, mm-hmm. but it's all, like, distorted in the like background. Like, inner dialogue, yeah. Yeah, and I, I love that. Actually, like, I and I agree with you, it does feel a little bit weird that Piggy is track two, because yeah. Piggy is complete opposite. Yep. Piggy is, like, it. it's one, one of the... F- few i think it's probably the only song where trent plays drums himself on the mm-hmm. actual track he he plays drums all over it and it's one of the most like obviously it's not like verbatim like he's not telling a fucking country music style <laughs> story but he does talk about you know the the piggy who left them the piggy left them there you know Black and blue, you know, and that was Richard Patrick's nickname was Piggy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was his nickname. That was his best bud. You could tell that feelings were hurt. Yeah. And, like, and obviously you can tie into the whole Pig Studio or whatever you want to call it, but it was a song that was very much aimed at Richard Patrick. And it was very much, like, in a way telling not an auto autobiographical story but kind of setting like the tone to like the story he wanted to tell of like Mm -hmm. this dude who's been kind of just like fucking forgotten about left behind you know kind of the beginning of a downward spiral but dude that's just been the slow descent yeah the slow descent into madness and which later comes in you know i'm not spoiling anything into suicide or whatever right it all leads to you know the suicide or suicide it's open for interpretation and whatnot and it's important to note that 
the two biggest albums that influenced Trent for this was Pink Floyd's The Wall, which you can definitely hear, like when you get like the story form of it, right? Because The Wall is all about, you know, Sid Barrett's, you know, descent into madness and mental health. Uh, But then also uh, David Bowie's Low. Now, obviously The Wall, I've heard like 12 jillion times or whatever, right? But David Bowie's Low, I've, I've probably heard it twice and I listened to it again this week, like, musically you can tell that's where he takes a lot of his cues well david bowie's low you can tell david bowie was snorting a lot of cocaine because it's like really high upbeat stuff yeah but he tells the story with music which is what trent does as well here like yeah he has lyrics here but the music for the most part is telling the story as opposed to the voice yeah no absolutely and one of the things that um you know i don't want this to get forgotten about but this tour this is the tour with once this album comes out, this is the tour that it's Trent, Trent Reznor, it's Nine Inch Nails and David Bowie touring together, which is already like not probably what most record companies would want from them. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like now they want to pigeonhole you to like doing like rock albums. You're touring with rock bands. Go tour with Smashing Pumpkins or something. Yeah. Like, like David Bowie, that's old people's music, but that's like his hero. Like mm-hmm. David Bowie is like by far the biggest Nine Inch Nails influence. So like that must have been a dream come true for him. Later on, gets to produce a, a David Bowie album as well. But, you know, definitely the David Bowie influences are alive and well, especially on this track. Like, you Mm -hmm. hear a lot of the David Bowie influences. This is the first time where he kind of sings in a more, like, jazzy David Bowie-style way. Correct. Um, You know, a couple of other things. I don't want to, again, I don't want to go track by track, but, you know, a couple of other things. You can't help it, though. (laughs) You you can't help it, but really, like, the next thing he goes into is really religion and heresy. heresy. You You see his, like, downfall and, like, distrust of people distrust of religion on the next track really just being like well fuck this shit like you know like it's basically just like nihilism yeah it's it's just total nihilist like the the big chorus is if there is a hell i'll see you there type of thing you know Mm -hmm. like your god is dead if if there is a hell i'll see you there and it's like yeah i mean it's totally like fuck this so like you know losing faith in people like your buddies gone your God, your religion, gone. gone. And, like, you know, next track right away. I mean, you get one of Heresy, pretty heavy track. Very next track, March of the Pigs, probably the heaviest track on the whole album, mm-hmm. where it's, like, really an open-for-interpretation kind of song, in my opinion, because it's, like, it literally just hits you with, like, like, all of this is like fucking. It almost that song always feels like to me like this is all fucking worth worthless and like mm-hmm. all the things that are worthless. Like it makes all these people just get through their day and feel so much better once yeah. they're like. It's like oh. an attack like on consumerism and like just like going through the motions kind of thing. Like everybody has to be doing X, Y, and Z in a certain pattern or whatever because it's like all the pigs are all lined up. You yeah. know, like that's what he's talking about. Like you know, like you're corralled into this direction your whole life kind of thing he's like fuck that and story-wise that's brilliant but then like musically too on the other end of it like you you nailed it on the head it's the heaviest fucking track because it's not very much a guitar driven album like it's very much like synth and then like like you said samples and whatnot it's like all over the place like with the music and this is like one of the only tracks where it's just like this is very guitar driven and then like it gets stripped away like layer by layer like once it hits the actual chorus 
and it goes into this very beautiful like piano like breakdown and i'm like yeah. i've never heard a song attempt this before or after like it is like one of the most brilliant brilliant brilliantly put together music musical songs it's a really of. risky song too like th- going from like one of the like heaviest like mosh pit was that you yeah. <laughs> one of the most like mosh pit like friendly songs to doing this like kind of like like opera ending like yeah. doesn't it make you feel better like and it's just it, it almost feels like it's like chaos 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 bam hit him with like a fucking it, it it feels like one of those like commercials for like <laughs> tide allegra or something like whatever like the fuck <laughs> like you know you see some of those commercials where you see like a couple like mm-hmm. in like a bathtub and they're like use mm-hmm. this for Cialis or whatever you know like <laughs> it almost feels like that and and i do think to a point he is right like you know, we we are constantly just being consumers, constantly trying to forget the how like ugly things are around us, like with like the commercialism of everything around us. Mm-hmm. And so, like, yeah, I get it. I mean, it is a pretty negative album, like, but and he makes good points throughout the album. You know, not and I could see how a younger and more impressionable youth can be like. I can see how this would be dangerous, I guess. Yeah, which we'll get into in a Some people bit, will yeah. make it sound like dangerous. You know, biggest hit of the whole album, Closer, the next song, Closer. I mean, same thing, continues down that, that here's this other thing I have distrust in. It's like the mixture of, of I don't, I don't want to just say exclusively relationships, but all like addiction of whatever your addiction may be and, and then i think it's a beautiful how he leaves it open for interpretation yeah because like, people think it's like a fucking song about fucking lust and you know sex and whatnot but you know when you really dig into it you're like oh this is heroin addiction you know like when you really strip it down you really look at the lyrics you're like oh like this is a guy that's like lost faith like in his friends family and the religion and what do you see you know and then consumerism and what is he seeking comfort in? Drugs, you know, and sex, drugs and sex, which, yeah. I mean, it can work both ways. Yeah, and, and I think that it's, in a way, it's kind of, like, um, honest, and, and, like, I think that, you know, a lot of people get through their days with that kind of shit, mm-hmm. you know, like, sexual addiction or drug addiction, it's, both are pretty chaotic, pretty destructive, mm-hmm. and yeah. I think the fact that he doesn't distinguish it from one or the other, it's beautiful. It, it's kind of, like, pretty genius because you know we view like alcoholism or drug addiction as super chaotic and like sex addiction addiction is like ne- always kind of gets forgotten or almost laughed mm. about like but That's not like real, yeah. yeah but but he kind of like mirrors the two things as like just as chaotic type mm-hmm. of thing and really at this point is really when the album in my opinion those are like the first like introductory tracks of losing faith in this losing faith in this losing faith in this type of thing you know you know, friends, religion, you know, society, relate relationships. And then really enters that character of like the ruiner mm-hmm. where it's like, it really like, to me, this is like the middle part of the story where it's like, you have the ruiner, you have like the guidelines of, okay, now you know why I've lost all this faith. Like now you know why I'm down in the dumps and like, here's how I feel. Mm-hmm. And and to me, it's like this portion of the album, like these next three three tracks in a row of the Ruiner, um, the Becoming, and it's the second I, act. I do not want this. Like those. Oh, and and really, uh, Big Man with the Gun. I always forget about Big Man with the Gun. But yeah. really, I guess those four tracks in a row 
uh, really to me it's like the here's what I'm doing about it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like here is the chaos part of it. And like in that, in, in that, and then really this is to me, like this is the body of, of the downward spirals, those four tracks of being like, like, okay, you, you know, people have left me, you know, this is bad, you know, like there's sex addiction and like all these things. But now like <laughs> wh- where has this driven me to? And it's like, total chaos and mm-hmm. the ruiner you get to see like what feels like it, there's moments that guitar solo that they do where it just literally sounds like you're in an empty room of like someone like fucking doing drugs in an empty room while there's a yeah. guitar player solo going on it doesn't sound clean it doesn't sound well produced and that is exactly how it was meant to sound yeah and the way they recorded that too like i didn't know this too but like he hired um Adrian Below, uh, he, I guess he's like in a, he worked for like Frank Zappa. If you know anything about Frank Zappa, he was all about experimentation, and he really was trying to like avoid like you know what was going on. Like you mentioned, like hair metal and you know all the you know Guns and Roses and even grunge to an extent. Like where it's all like driven by guitar, it's all like the same formula. Like oh, you got one or two guitars, you got a bass guitar, and like that's how it's just riff heavy or whatever, right? And so you'd get Adrian just to like play like random guitar parts and like they would do that for like 20, 40 minutes and whatnot. And he was, he would tell me like, don't go uh, to make this like a riff or to make it into a groove. Just go with like the emotion of the guitar, like the palette make of the emotion, like make it feel hateful, make it feel like you're in a room where people are fucking, you know, doing smack and shit. Right. And they would just do that for 20 or 30 minutes record it on an analog tape run it through pro tools play with the sounds and whatnot and this is like pretty innovative for like 92 93 when they're recording this album play you know you know with the with with the with the sound wave through a Ma- old school like you know macintosh uh take it out then re-record it onto an analog tape and then kind of mess with the tape like he, he would say like he would what was it? He like rubbed dirt like in the tape, like to make it just sound grungy and just nasty or whatever, right? Like it, there was no cleanliness to it or whatever. Like you said, very intentional, but all to fucking have like that emotion yeah. come through of like this is a dirty, dark place. And it like just straight Even it right the up the drums like, you hear in the background. The yeah. Like, they sound like they're recorded like in the next room and they just held the microphone to the next room. Like yeah. it sounds that fucked up. Like, and I love it because in a nutshell like that shouldn't sound good but he makes it sound good and once you get into these tracks which i'll just say off the top like if your first run through this album like this is the most difficult part of the album to get into like and like but once you know like those little facts about like that's how it was recorded like it again it increases the value you find in this music to me the the following track the becoming probably my favorite song on the whole album to be quite honest with you it's the most, I don't want to say distorted, but this is like, if there's an industrial track, this is it. It literally sounds like machines, like, taking over, like, it sounds really like, like, I don't know. It literally sounds like a machine the whole time that you're listening to it. And it's pretty fucked up lyrics. It's it's basically like this dude losing, losing you know, losing who he is, mm-hmm. you know, comparing it to becoming, like, more machine than man, but really it to me it all just metaphors of like of like 
really losing yourself, like knowing you're losing yourself, like seeing yourself become less and less of who you are. Yeah. And one of the most beautiful things to me is like, this is the most fucked up, distorted electronic song on the album. And then there's like a moment of beauty, like beautiful acoustic guitar. And he sings this <laughs> line where he says, Annie, hold on a little closer. I might just lose myself. And then it breaks into like the most like heavy, like, <laughs> and it's like, and he sings the line of like, it won't give up. It, what does he say? Um, like this goddamn noise inside my head. Yeah. It won't give up. It wants me dead. This goddamn noise inside Sorry. my head. And he just sings that over and over and over. And it's just like, but you get this one little moment of like clarity Clarity. where it's like soft and beautiful. And it's just, it almost seems like for a second, he like remembers like, like his beautiful life of like, you know, before all this like distortion. And you get a weird name, name drop in there, which never happens in any Nine Inch Nails song, which is not a reference to anyone particular in Trent Reznor's family. There's no like girlfriend or family member named Annie, but I don't know. It, it's kind of like beautiful how abstract it is. And it, maybe that's the story that he was trying to tell of like, mm-hmm. of like this, like, you know, point in his life where things are more innocent and beautiful. And then bam, now it's like the chaos. schizophrenic chaos in his head of like, just full on, like going into madness kind of thing. And it really is one of the rougher part of the albums. And this, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, this is like, if you're hoping for like a fucking, Disney movie. Yeah, like this ain't <laughs> this ain't it, dude. I was gonna say Billie Eilish because I, I didn't ever really listen to Billie Eilish music because like Billie Eilish looks like she would be like singing some crazy experimental shit, and then you listen to her music and it's like the most like basic like white girl shit ever. <laughs> but like, <laughs> it's like to me, it's like it ain't that. Like this is like it ain't these, Taylor Swift. Yeah, yeah, like this ain't Taylor Swift shit. You know, like it's like really, really, really like rough recordings but they're very beautiful recordings too like Mm -hmm. they all sound very sharp and crisp but it's just like they're rough like this is definitely not something that like ain't gonna this ain't gonna get played on crab radio like what's that band that like ross recommended to us (laughs) (laughs) like no disrespect to that but didn't that sound like something like crab radio picked this up like it's verse chorus verse chorus done this is not that and then going back to like the samples, um, he samples, you know, the screams from like this movie called Robot Jocks, where you get like all the screaming and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't know like it was explicitly a sample. And I think like industrial music, like it's cool, you know, I, I dig it, but it's very explicit. Like you understand where this came from. Oh, whatever, yeah. I mean, right? in but most like, part, like Rob Zombie, it's like very like, here's a fucking sample. I didn't even try on this shit. Yeah. Like, yeah. which I dig. I'm not going to lie. But like here, like I wouldn't even have known that this was from that movie because it was like Dr. Dre, like to reference the, you know, the chronic episode, like it's so well crafted, the samples, like it becomes its own piece of work Mm -hmm. in itself, you know? And that's, that's admirable too, where it's just like, I didn't just lift the sample like puff daddy or whatever. Right. I'm actually making it into its own thing. I'm building upon that sound. And it, it adds like to this, like we were talking about, it's this guy, it's a story about this guy's slow descent into madness and like those screams that he's talking about, that goddamn voice inside my head, you hear those screams going on, and I'm like, wow, that that is so perfect yeah. for what this song is talking about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the I Do Not Want This follows it up. I Do Not Want This. This is the first time you, that distorted voice takes on a full-on character. I think basically sings the chorus to you mm-hmm. for the first time. You get to hear that distorted voice come at you. Yeah. And like, do not. You know, like it's basically... Yeah, like it's yeah. just it's very like 
badass in my opinion like another one of those like i like this part of the album you know not to like spend too much time on that track because it gets followed up with big man with the gun big man with the gun probably the most controversial song yeah uh, on the whole album even though it's probably which is weird because it's like (laughs) such a like i don't want to say throwaway song it is the shortest song on the album it's like a minute 36 or whatever and it's it's weird because it's such a like a blip on the album there's so much other controversial things that are going on in this album where it's just like for one, okay, like the lyrics are like, I got a big gun and a big dick. That sounds totally and, like satirical. Yeah, and like he said that when he was recording this, like, yeah, obviously it fits within the story or whatever, right? Like this is his like last hurrah, you know. It does sound like his, let's his, go out and do a bunch of drugs and fucking kill people. Kind of. Yeah, and fuck <laughs> prostitutes and shit kind of thing. And it's like it's at the end of his rock bottom kind of thing, right? And um, he said, though, but it also doubles as, like, satire against what was going on with gangster rap at the time. Like, and we're not talking about, like, the chronic here. We're talking about all the, you know, the copycats or whatever, right? Where it's just like, hey, I got a big gun and I got a big dick kind of thing or whatever, right? Which is ironic because he would later get nailed to the cross by C. Dolores Tucker and, you know, a bunch of other, you know, know, conservatives, social conservatives— and Nine Inch Nails gets labeled as gangster rap. And like, there's like this whole Senate hearing, like where they're reading the lyrics for this song. And when you see the lyrics on paper, you're like, oh yeah, this is, this is dangerous. This is crazy. But it, like when you hear him sing it, you're like, one, this is not gangster rap. Yeah. <laughs> it's a white boy from Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> and he's not even rapping. And then two, like the way he's singing it, it's like you said, it's very satirical. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's about like the final stage of this guy's is rock bottom. And it's a perfect analogy for where music was at this time, where it's just like everything's getting mislabeled and wrongfully blamed for, you know, the woes of society as well. Where yeah. it's just like, you're going to label Nine Inch Nails as fucking gangster rap? Like, yeah. you obviously don't know what you're talking about. Here. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, and it, it Trent was talked about how that's his least favorite song on the album. And like... I get it. I I don't I don't think it's the best Nine Inch Nails stuff, but I don't think it's anything to not be proud about. It's it's a pretty badass song. Like yeah. and it, and it it works well as like the climax of like chaos, 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 end of this chapter of like those four songs begin. And it, it's such a like night and day type of thing to go into the next you know batch of songs and really mm-hmm. the most experimental part of the album really because at this point I don't want to say like this has all been done before, but like. You know, nothing that w- was like completely never been touched before. But really, the 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 showstopper is the last batch of songs. Yeah, in my opinion, this this is like the goosebump. You know, the it, the final third act because it's it's within third acts, like any great movie or whatever. This yeah. final third act, this is where you get goosebumps from these songs. Oh like yeah, each it, one of these songs, like one, two, three, four. Five, the last five songs, pretty much, they all g- can give you goosebumps. Yeah, absolutely. And this is really where Trent is like, okay, well, I, like, if you know, we've seen, you know, glimpses of stuff like this before. Like, you know, there's moments on, on the Broken album that kind of sound like stuff like this, you know, but nothing like this. And definitely nobody was doing stuff like this, like how he ends the album. He ends it in, like, the most cinematic kind of way, which kind of ironic because now he does, like, scoring for movies yeah. and all that stuff. But the first song you get in that batch is a warm place. Oh, I love instrumental this track. One of the most like beautiful songs. It literally sounds super delicate to to me. It's kind of weird. I always imagine like it sounds like 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 
rosebuds falling on water. Like, but at Ooh. the same time, it almost sounds like like blood drops dropping on water because there's like this little like guitar playing that's going on in the background. I've always envisioned something like that where it's like this is like the this is like the calm after like the storm where it's just like all that fucking chaos just happened and now I would he's say just, the eye in the middle of the storm. Yeah, so it, it almost just feels like like you've completely lost yourself. And now you're having to deal with the repercussions of having lost yourself. And like, and then I think for a moment of clarity, like he has like this weird moment of clarity where this like constant like sample is being played in the background. And I forget what it says. It has like a really like uplifting thing where it's like, the oh, the beautiful thing about life is that you have control over it. And it just samples that over and over and over and over. Like, so if you ever listen to that shit, Let's try to listen to it on some high quality headphones, but yeah. there's a little sample in the background just saying the beautiful part about life is that you have control over it. The beautiful part about life is they have control over it. And it's just like, and it's almost like he's telling himself that like, mm-hmm. he's like, I have, I can, I can overcome this. <laughs> and like, also the saddest part of the whole album, because it almost seems like that's like a glimpse of him trying to be like, Kick I out. can, I can come back from this. I can, I can do this. I can come back from this. Only to take it to Eraser, which literally Ooh. blends the two worlds together of like this instrumental <laughs> track <laughs> that takes you to like what sounds like distorted insects and like little straws, <laughs> like and that sound at the beginning that. <laughs> so Ben and I, we had this theory that like, <laughs> what the fuck made that sound? Like you know, it's not a guitar, it's not a synth, it's not anything or whatever, right? And we had this theory that like Trent. <laughs> And Marilyn Manson went to Burger King or McDonald's or whatever. You know, like when you put like yeah. the straw in like the cup. That's and, what it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. And I, we always thought it was that. Like it was just Marilyn Manson and Trent Reznor going like with a fucking McDonald's, you know, plastic cup or whatever. Right. But I did a little digging and it was actually Trent who, when he was in high school, played, I guess, saxophone. It was him blowing into the reed of uh the saxophone read or whatever right without you know making that lisa simpson shit going on or whatever yeah. right and i was like yeah that, that's what, exactly what it is it wasn't <laughs> yeah. a late night fucking run to mcdonald's or whatnot right so that's that little shit like that like little noises like that like where it, it sounds beautiful but you don't know where it came from the, the transition from a warm place to a racer could not be any more telling of what's about to happen. Correct. Like you literally go from like, "Hey, this is pretty calm and beautiful. Like maybe, maybe things are gonna work out for this character." And then it just goes darker and darker until yeah. like, it feels like you're spinning too, which like works into like the motif of the fucking album, like the downward spiral. Because I always like when I listen to this, especially with good headphones or whatever, yeah. especially like the five point one release or whatever, which is over there somewhere. Like, it sounds like everything is spinning. Like, you get dizzy listening to it because it, it, it literally feels like you're getting flushed yeah. down the toilet. No, absolutely. Once it takes you down, it, it one of the more popular tracks on this album, I've seen him play this live, and it's just, like, incredible because, like, it's so cinematic. It takes It's almost an instrumental track on its own because really only, like, the last minute of the song have lyrics in it, and it is some of the most, like, intense lyrics you know he's talking about basically like i don't want to go lyric by lyric type of thing but it is the most like i might as well kill me like i might as well like Mm -hmm. die like you know like it it literally is him saying that i mean it ends with him screaming like kill me it's just like and it's just like literally him accepting like i might as well die because this is like 
it doesn't get any worse than this. Like, and like, to me, it's just like, damn, like it, it, it like, yeah, I think every time I hear that, I'm like, oh, that's fucking the dopest shit ever. Like, how are you going to follow this up? <laughs> Followed by one of the more, probably the second most popular, third most popular song on the album, Reptile. Reptile. Like, Reptile is like one of the outstanding ones. Of all the samples, this one probably has the coolest, in my opinion, like the coolest sample of like a t- Texas Chainsaw Massacre sample of like a girl falling down and like looping that over and then, yep. <laughs> yeah, Kirk help, yeah, like just like <laughs> over and over and like doing even the that. beginning of that song, like you, like you can't put your finger on where it com- where it came from, and it was a movie sample called Leviathan, like where they're underwater, like uh-huh. in you know in a submarine and whatnot, and like oh my god, like yeah, it makes so much sense. But like within the context of the song, like it's like it, it feels like you go down like this big old fucking you know uh, downward spiral, and you're at the down the end of that spiral, and that's what you feel all subterranean, like a reptile kind of thing, you know, yeah. and like that whole like you know industrial like where I, you you lose all humanity. I've always thought about like you know in my my vision of this is like like this is a guy that's been fighting this like for a long time. And this song almost feels like him giving into like, like committing murder kind of thing. Like this, this almost feels like it's like some Hannibal Lecter kind of shit where he's like, I'm just going to dissect this woman now. Like, cause it feels that dark. Like it's literally talking about like a woman, like, and like really a lot of like the anatomy of a woman and like, you know, like really a prostitute. Like he's doing all these metaphors for like a, you know, woman who lives a promiscuous life and all the fucking insects that crawl inside of her and all this stuff. And like, like it's pretty dark shit. Like he's basically just like giving into like this, like, well, I guess I'm a murderer now. Like, I guess like <laughs> this is, this is life. And like, and, and it's, it's pretty, pretty dark in, in my opinion, like how, and, and I think that there's still the struggle of like him fighting, like, I wish I was a good person kind of thing. Like, I wish I wasn't doing this, but, like, mm-hmm. this is just what it is now. And it's, like, like, almost like the soundtrack to, like, you know, what Jeffrey Dahmer or fucking Ted Bundy might hear in their head. Like, as it, it really is. Yeah. Like, it is, like, like the perversion level is, like, at 100% now. Like, it's, it's, it's done. There's no coming back from this. There's, mm-hmm. like, like, I've always viewed it as that. Like, this is the soundtrack to a, a serial killer, like, fucking dissecting somebody like that's how i feel it, it it's always in my head that's always what it what it's like been like you know we try anim- fighting it off yeah the animalistic instincts yeah 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 like he, he tried fighting it off and it didn't work so like here we are now only to go to the point where um the downward spiral is the next track right yeah um so the downward spiral to go to the, the next track the downward spiral where it literally is just like nah i'm gonna just check out on this like Mm -hmm. like and literally explaining like here's how it's gonna go down like it's it's like a murder suicide (laughs) overdose like i just can't do this anymore and like it's and at this point this is that distorted voice is pretty much telling you this is what's gonna happen like Mm -hmm. there's gonna be a lot of blood there's gonna be a hole in my body (laughs) And then the thing I I like about this whole album, like you you get that like 
<clears throat> you know, like that ending piano note that of uh, closer, like that that plays here. It also plays in, you know, other parts of the album makes an appearance, like that reprise of like that riff, as well as like, you know, other lyrics, you know, that, you know, pop up here and there, which tie the story together. And I thought like that was a super nice touch as well. Yeah. The, you know what? On the, uh, uh, so on this song, the downward spiral, he samples his own voice, which I thought was really cool. Like it's just him screaming, like the like, like just these tortured screams over and over, just looping like in different like, like different not, not different tempos, but like just off rhythm like screams in the background, which I think is a really unique thing that I never heard anyone else do. Um, I know that on the remix album that later comes out there's a song it's called erase me and like if you play it backwards it's like him saying erase me like over and over and over but like the song is being played forward which is also pretty cool um but that's not a different album but just you know that's the remix album to this album just really really cool like the guy's just full of like these like genius ideas and like that to me like that that's one that like you know you can't play with your fucking grandparents in the car kind of <laughs> no. thing because it's like literally him like screaming like like fucking bloody murder or whatever mm-hmm. while that distorted voice is telling you like this is what's gonna happen mm-hmm. only to have the final and like you know epic Most crescendo impactful song of the album yeah yeah it's like you know the epic crescendo of uh here's a dude telling you his like suicide note you basically just reading a suicide note at the very mm-hmm. end and like being like. Yeah, well, you know that on is. the you know that on the head too. Like when you said like this is like the end credit song kind of thing, and I listened to a few other podcasts and their interpretation on it. Because in your head, you again, Trent leaves everything open to interpretation. He hasn't really elaborated it too much on the story, but like in my opinion, he survives this the suicide and whatnot. Right now, other people, you know, their interpretation was that like, oh no, this is just like you said like it's the you know the end credits or whatnot um other people think it's you know this guy you know looking upon his his soul coming out of his body looking upon like you know what he did to himself which basically is commit suicide or whatever right and all of those things could be true and whatnot right and it's a very beautiful touching song and i think the bones of this song this is how you know like this is a classic song years later johnny cash would uh cover this song and do it just as well, and in some people's opinion, better than Trent, whatever. And it kind of reminds me of like Beatles songs that would later on be covered by other artists, and you know their version sounds better. And I always feel like, yeah, like you can write like a, a really good song, but if it can live on through other people's interpretations and still be a classic, that's how you know, like it's a fucking just solid hundred percent five out of five song. And that's what Hurt is. Yeah, you know, I agree with that. I think that like. I agree with that, but I think it it takes like a special artist to cover like a great song. Like you can't just have some fucking like Kelly Clarkson motherfucker <laughs> come out here to like Taylor Swift covering Hurt type of thing, you know? Like, yeah. like I, I I don't I don't want to hear that shit. Like there's something special about Johnny Cash doing it because that is Johnny Cash at the end of his life. And let's face it, like the thing that makes that beautiful is that in the story, or you know, in the downward spiral story, this is him coming to the conclusion that you know like i'm worthless like you know i've only brought like chaos and sadness to people's lives like i'm fucking checking this this is this is it this is the end of the road in my opinion like that's what makes it beautiful that you know it is the 
the end of the downward spiral like like you know it's the 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 finality of it the only way to tell it is like if an old man where we all know what old people's voices sound like if an old man is telling it with like his sadness in his voice telling the story of like of a story coming to a conclusion we all know it like johnny cash sounds like he's about to die he literally dies like a year later after that song comes out like that's what makes it so impactful and so beautiful like because we as humans we just recognize it like we just recognize when something's coming to an end and and it's sad yes but it's also beautiful you know it, it to me that adds beauty to it and so it's like I think that that's what makes that song so beautiful. Trent Reznor later comes out and says, you know, that's not my song anymore. Like, that's his song. Oh, know? God. The way he explained it was so beautiful, too. Like, where he says, like, at first, like, he was pissed off. Or not yeah. pissed off, but, like, upset. It would be like, you know, catching your girl cheating on you or whatever, right? Yeah. But then you see, like, the guy that she's cheating on you with, like, is, like, this, you know, bigger, better dude or whatever. He goes, oh, that's no longer my girlfriend at that point. This is no yeah. longer my song at that point. Like, it's like, he killed it. He knocked it out of the park. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a one in a million shot type of thing. You know, in my opinion, that's one in a million shot. You only get, you know, later on, David Bowie's uh black star album does something very similar where it's just like, nobody knew David Bowie was dying of cancer. And he does an album where he's basically talking about, Hey, this is me dying of cancer. And then this is, <laughs> this is a story of me telling you I died from cancer. Peace out. And it's like, here's the album comes out and like literally the dude dies like a day later or whatever wow. and it's just like that's one of those things that's like you know that's when you turn your death into like an art project type of thing you know and like i'm not saying that's what trent Reznor did but it took a lot out of him in my opinion a lot of people try to make this sound this album sound like it's autobiographical i don't think it's that at all but i do think that there's elements that are you know was he hurt by richard patrick leaving the band absolutely i think that that was the beginning of it was he surrounded by like like douchebags like Marilyn Manson. Like he's talked about what, like the impact that Marilyn Manson had on him at this time. He, it was a pretty negative presence. Like, you know, like him and him and Marilyn Manson had his, have had a lot of ups and a lot of downs. And like, you know, this felt like an up, but really it took, you know, was a down in the long run. They're kind of sep Their relationship suffered a lot after this. Um, even though he would do another Manson album after this. And, you know, he does um, antichrist with yeah. him. Um, but, um, you know, I don't think he knew how autobiographical it was. Like, yes, you were surrounded by all these negative people. Yes, you were on drugs. Yes, your best buddy just left you. Like, you, you have, like... (laughs) All the pressure in the world to deliver a follow-up to a classic, like, you know, Pretty Hate Machine. And, oh, yeah, by the way, you're on the same label as this guy named Dr. Dre who's taking the world by storm and changing the music industry as a whole um and oh yeah by the way you know the the face of the music industry just committed suicide and i think that's the big thing and yeah. i don't think he wanted that pressure like all of a sudden everybody was looking around for who's the next kurt cobain mm-hmm. and i don't think he wanted that pressure at all i don't think he wanted the star like he didn't want the fucking because he dragged spotlight on him he dragged his feet you recording because i looked at like the time frame of this album was recorded it was released what was it march of 1994 he recorded most of this like in 92 and 93 uh, but he experienced a lot of writer's block. Uh, again, like he was dragging well, his feet with like, 
you know, he did suffer from, um, you know, alcohol addiction. I guess he was suffering from cocaine addiction as well, as well as going through like a lot of emotional depression and shit as well. Yeah. I mean, really, if you look at like when this album got released, you know, 94 does a really successful tour, then does two legs of that successful tour. He does it with David Bowie, then he comes out and tours with Manson, and he does that whole thing. He puts out his like VHS, the closure, the closure, um, home recordings or whatever, which are like fucking weird and cool at the same time. Like, I love, <laughs> I, lo- I remember my brother in law showing me those when I was like younger, and I was like, this is fucking insane, dude. Like, this is fucking wild shit. Like, pretty dope, like, kind of stuff. But obviously, he was surrounded by a lot of chaos. Yeah. And he's talked about it. Like, this album took. You know, how do you follow up this? Like now, everybody wants you to be the next Kurt Cobain. You want to, you're, you know, we want you to be a rock star. You're it, dude. You just, yeah. you just scored another major hit. Here we go. What's your follow up? His follow up is producing an album. You know, his follow up is doing Antichrist. His follow up after that is doing a movie soundtrack for a David Lynch film where he puts one song out on that mm-hmm. thing, and everybody's like, okay, what's the follow up? And it's like, let me do a really really experimental album and do fragile where like you know like all the music videos are going to be way weirder and like the songs are going to be way longer and you're gonna not like this and i think lucky for him and unlucky for him at this time period new metal started taking off and i think he must have hated it and must have loved it at the same time and he's kind of talked about how he you know he was kind of glad the pressure was off and now it was like you know the limp biscuits and the corn they were like becoming way more popular and he didn't have to be that big rock star anymore because he killed a bunch of time just like basically hanging out in new orleans doing nothing (laughs) and like and he talked about that how he was just like i just did not want to do an album i didn't want to do another album it was like whatever and and then you see like after that you know i i view that as the first chunk of albums like you know um pretty hate machine to the fragile like to me that's the first like chapter of the nine chanel's world and then with teeth and all that stuff, he starts almost putting an album out like once, once a year. year yeah. Like he's like, I can make music all day long. That's all I do is make music. I just don't want to fucking be like on the cover of the magazine thing, yeah. you know, like which is pretty admirable. Like mm-hmm. I I love I love that about him. I love the fact that he, he did this and it was like, you know, you get to see the journey journey of recovery. Not so much on the fragile, because the fragile he was I remember there was a weird interview I watched. Like it was an MTV interview where he basically comes out and they ask him like, "Hey, you look like you don't look all scrawny and sickly anymore. Like what's <laughs> going on?" It's all buff and shit. And, yeah. And and he's basically like, "Ah, you know what? I just been biking a lot. Like that's pretty much all I I've, I've been doing." And like later on he does he gets buffer and buffer as he, you know, <laughs> goes on and like you know, to fast forward, I I I mentioned this before we started recording, but you know, in 2014 he does the album hesitation marks where you know he does a glimpse back to that life and not so much like the character of what's going on at the downward spiral but really you know who he was and like you know the damage it took on his life and if you listen to that album it's an album that's really grown on me over the time over time because at the time i was like eh, it's okay but like really like it is a it is an album about like maturing and overcoming like weird shit in your life and all mm-hmm. this stuff. It's it's kind of a beautiful album, and he does a lot of the same artwork. The artwork director that worked on the Downward Spiral, which 
is another Russell Mills. Yeah, it's one of those things we didn't really talk about it, but if you look at the artwork, it literally starts off with just like splatters of paint and like, like at the end, it's like splatters of paint with like chicken blood and like feathers and all this shit. Moths and and yeah, and it's just like rusted decay. Yeah, and he and he's like, you know what? We're doing that again for this album, and like it's it's really really a like the art the artwork and the the everything about it just fucking yeah it like perfect like it's a perfect marriage between the the look of the album and the sound of the album i just i think it's amazing like perfect marriage and what's uh funny we we're talking about this album how like you know jimmy Iveen basically gave him fucking you know carte blanche to do whatever he wanted to do or whatever right and with that like he you know you he took his time to you know put out this album uh trent in an interview with mtv he was talking about how like you know during that process he feel like he, he felt he felt like he failed like once he completed the album because he was like, man, I feel sorry for Interscope. You know, once I give it to him, like, how are they going to be able to sell this? Because, you know, there's not a single on here that, you know, you can put on MTV. You know, we're going to try for it. But, you know, like, hey, you know, like, but at the same time, I felt good because it was the it was true for what I was at this time. He goes, a lot of people are going to get pissed off because it's not Pretty Hate Machine. It's not broken. But he goes, that's who I was recording those albums. This is where I'm at now. And I probably won't ever be like this again. But this is at this time in 1994. Like this is who I am, kind of thing. And he he says that he delivered it to Jimmy, and he was listening to closer. And he goes, "Dude, this song is gonna change the fucking music industry." And he goes, "Oh God, I don't think he knows what the fuck he's talking about." Sure enough, you put out that video, fucking, it becomes one of the biggest music videos of all time. It might even be, like we said during the music video episode, might if someone was to say that was the greatest music video of all time, I would not argue it, right? And then the whole song, to me, I think, yeah, Closer is the biggest fucking, you know, song on the album. And, you know, to sound like a little asshole, sometimes, you know, you want to, you know, discard that song because of that. But, like, listening to that song over and over again this week, like, that is, like, one of the greatest songs production-wise I have ever listened to. Just, like, the layers of sound, the voices, the way they come in and out. That that literally, like, if you were to make it top ten songs of all time, if that was on the list... Like, it's hard to say that, like, that's not one of the greatest songs ever fucking recorded. And, like, you got that on there. And it this whole album, the whole imagery, everything around it. I know Nirvana always gets credit for, like, changing the whole music industry. But it was really, like, this movement of artists, you know, with, you know, yeah, Nirvana had a big part of it that, you know, changed music from the 80s into the 90s. And I think this was, like, the final blow to all the shit, all the fucking Reagan era bullshit that came out in the eighties. And cause it really changed artists moving forward. It changed guns and roses. Axl Rose was a huge fan of nine inch nails so much so that after, you know, their tour with nine inch nails, everything guns and roses related was industrial sounding and not just industrial, like skinny puppy or ministry. It was like nine inch nails sounding Motley Crue tried to do it as well as like a slew of other artists. They totally changed what they were doing. Obviously, Kurt Cobain dies like a month after, you know, this album comes out. But everyone was looking at like, oh, shit, rock-wise? You know, Dr. Dre over here, like he changed what rap was going to be like for the next 10 to 15 years. But rock-wise, oh, wow, this this is the new way. You know, this yeah. is the Mandalorian. This is the way. And everybody started copying him after that as well. And that, to me, is like the impact of this album. And to me... You put this album on in 2023, something that was recorded 30 years ago, pretty much, right? And it still sounds fresh. And to me, that again, that's another marker of a great 
classic 100% album. Yeah, no, absolutely. I you you uh you know that a lot of artists try to try to sound like the Downward Spiral, try to look like the Downward Spiral. You look at Marilyn Manson who became the next hot thing, you know, like but his music videos are all like let's just try to rip off Closer over and over and over. <laughs> yeah. It it launched Mark Romanek's career. I mean, he was doing stuff before that, but he was doing like pop videos. Yeah. And all of a sudden like Trent Reznor was just like do whatever you want, but we're going to make it dark as hell like and and they did it and like and changed his career. Now he does serious stuff. So it's like <clears throat> I don't know. It's it's um it was it was definitely groundbreaking. It was, you know, you know, genre defying. Like it was, it was, it was. It's wild. I mean, you saw all these copycat acts, acts that I I like. Like Gravity Kills came out after that. Stabbing Westworld came out after that, and like kind of did their versions of it. And like, and like, yeah, they were. I I like early Stabbing Westward, and I think Gravity Kills kind of you know pick, makes the same album after album after album. Yeah. <laughs> and and I like Gravity Kills, but like, um, and I like a lot of like industrial stuff from the nineties, but. N- nobody did what what Nine Inch Nails did when they did this album, mm-hmm. and even Nine Inch Nails was like, "I'm not doing that again." Like you look at the Fragile after this, doesn't sound anything like this. Mm-hmm. There's little hints of it, but it's it's not trying to be the Downward Spiral Part Two. Well, it's like he said. He goes, "That's where I was at that time. This is where I'm at now," yeah. kind of thing. And that's why I always respected Trent Reznor. He wasn't. He's not always trying to like a Slayer, like re-release the same album over and over again or whatever, like, yep, this is who we are and we're just going to keep doing it or whatever. Like, no, as he ages and changes, you know, the music changes. So much so now where, like, he's a father of five, you know, he's a husband and a father first kind of thing, and, like, he's doing Disney movies. Next month, the Ninja Turtles movie is coming out. I didn't know this. He did the score to that. Like, yeah. it's like, wow, that that's going to be awesome take my kid <laughs> you know to see yeah. that shit you know it, it is wild dude like the soul soundtrack you're right he did the pixar soul soundtrack yeah i have that on vinyl it's like beautiful yeah it's beautiful he's done everything um the um the vietnam war film he did that uh he's done um social uh, pr- network yeah social network gone girl like you know pretty much like so many major movies he's done the soundtrack for, and it's just mm-hmm. like, dude, he winning Oscars he, and shit he, for it. He's yeah. he's just amazing, like amazing musician, like just you know, he's an artist. He's yeah, a true he, artist. he he is a true artist, and that that is really cool about him. That it's just, it's not just one thing that he's good at, and he tries to do like, let's bring back the Pantera tour because you know <laughs> it's like, you know, artists do that where they're just like the remember us at kind of thing. And it's like, he's not holding Like if he never puts out another album, like that done, like perfect, perfect, like no bad albums kind of thing, you know? Last and like, shot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, I remember me and Ben went to go see them in LA. They had five nights in a row in LA and every night was going to be something different. And I thought that was like genius. Like, cause it was like, like night one was only like, only like B sides. I was like all the B sides. And at the end you got like, like four of the hit songs and it ended. And then, like, the night we went to was everything before 1996 and before, which was, like, badass. Like, it was, like, an old-school Nine Inch Nails show. And then they had one that was, like, they did one that was, like, pretty much, like, all the fragile plus, like, a couple of other, like, had, like, a hole. And that's That's awesome. Because they got to play had, like, a hole. Yeah. (laughs) And, like, you know, like, just stuff like that. I was, like, dude, this is, like, badass. The fact that it's, like, every night was completely different. You were getting, like, a completely different show. And it's, like. I appreciate that. Yeah. I was, like, that's badass like that you know like 
you know, we're not just here for one thing. We're not just here, like, play closer again. Like, it's just like, no, we all kind of appreciate, like, your musicianship. It's all beautiful. Like, mm-hmm. yes, Closer's a big hit. And, yes, it's going to get played on Crab Radio. But, like, that's just the fucking, you know, the little fucking the candy ice. to, like, bring the people in and be like, oh, what the fuck is this? This is. I 100% agree yeah. with that, yeah. Uh, a few, uh, you know, fast facts about this album um, before we, you know, start to wrap it up. Uh, one of the, um, where is it? I forget. Oh, uh, Big Man with a Gun. I I forgot the name of the song for a minute. That's how you know it's the end of the episode. <laughs> uh, Big Man with a Gun. There's a sample on there credited to Tommy Lee called Ste- My Steakhouse. Huh. And I always thought that was a weird fucking thing. Because, yeah, he did have like, because he, he does seem like he's like this elitist artist at times. And it's just like, oh, he would never associate with, you know, people from Motley Crue or Guns N' Roses or even Pantera, if you will, kind of thing, right? Uh, but he did. And I always thought that was weird. I was like, Tommy Lee? Like, that's 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 odd or whatever, right? And I never knew what the story was, and I didn't know what the sample was, what they were fucking talking about. Like, does Tommy Lee, like, make an appearance in the background or something like that or say something? Like, I never got it. But I guess the story is, is like that, like, that weird, like, yell at the beginning, that distorted yell at the beginning. It was actually... Um, uh, they were recording at Jim Henson Studios, or I can think it was called A and M Studios or Charlie Chaplin Studios, still at that time. So that 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 studio that like on Hollywood Boulevard, like with Kermit the Frog out there and shit. Mm-hmm. He was he was putting the finishing touches on the album, and uh, it was Danny Loner's birthday. And so what Tommy Lee did is he brought like a score of like porn stars down to the studio. And, you know, Trent was, like, on the grand piano or whatnot. And they were, you know, recording shit or whatever, right? Those 20-minute, like, you know, guitar riffs or whatever, right? And uh, he put four of, like, the porn stars on the grand piano. And he goes, sit back, boys, and watch the show. And I guess, like, the they were inserting, like, ping-pongs into, like, the lady's vagina. <laughs> like, one of the lady's vagina. And, like, they would, like, push them in and pull them out or whatever. And, like, I guess she was, like, this notorious squirter. you know and what that sound is is like a distorted moan from that lady getting like ping pong balls you know pulled out of her her hoo-ha as she was squirting or whatever and that's like well that's a fucking crazy fact right there yeah um what oh sorry go go ahead no you go ahead no i was gonna say like one of the things that you know we didn't really talk about is the the way that this tour came like you know obviously you had the album but the way that the tour was you know slated to go out was really different especially for the time other artists have done things like this since but what he decided to do was you know he had you know at one point david bowie was the headliner nine chanel's was the opener and that was you know leg one of the tour leg two of the tour was nine chanel's was the headliner and marilyn manson was the opener and what they did between the bands was they had the the jim rose circus come out and so it was basically like it became a pretty like controversial thing because the Jim Rose Circus Jim Rose Circus was basically like all these like sideshow freak attractions they had like a dude with like a big old dick come out and like basically <laughs> his name was Mr. Lifto and he would just basically tie like bricks to his dick and like lift them and like swing them all around the stage wow. and stuff anyways like eventually like Trent Reznor got like really pissed off because I guess people were like would show up to like 
the show with like laser pointers and stuff like that. And Trent was like, Hey, you can't be doing that. Like Mr. Lifto is going to hurt his dick and all this. <laughs> and I thought that was like the fact that like Trent Reznor was out there, like fighting for the Jim Rose, Jim Rose circus, like to be like, no dude, like if you want to see nine inch nails, you stop bringing these fucking laser pointers and like fucking with Mr. Lifto and shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> Don't let him injure his like, dick. Dude, to me, it's like that. It was so badass that it was like he knew, like, you know, and this was Trent Reznor at his edgiest, where he was like, he needed to find the line of, like, we can't be the next, like, fucking Motley Crew or something like that. We can't be the next whatever. Like, mm-hmm. this cannot be, like, something easy to digest. The like, gimmick can't overshadow, like, the art. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, like, there had to be like a divide of like, okay, I, I need a Manson to open up. I need a Jim Rose circus to open up. Cause it needs to be like edgier than that. But at the same time, it needs to be like beautiful. Like, and he, like it was a perfect balance. Like he found a way to like bring the freak show out and like really like have like a beautiful thing. Like, yeah, I don't know. It, I, anyways, that was like one of the things that I thought was really cool about that. Bringing out, bringing that as a, as his opening act, the Jim Rose. Jim That'd be Rose dope circus. to see. I didn't know that even though I feel like I should have. Um, one thing, too, we talked about um, is, like, the character of this album as uh, uh, Mr. Self-Destruct or whatever, right? And mm-hmm. So I um, uh, hate to end the <laughs> episode on this note, uh, but one of the shooters uh, for Columbine, Dylan Klebold, uh, identified uh, with the protagonist, Mr. Self-Destruct, uh, and they, again, the whole Congress thing, they used that... I guess, like, in his diary, they, they he identified with the main character. Yeah. I guess, like, Congress, again, you know, like, the whole, like, big man with a gun kind of thing. They use that as a spearhead to say, like, oh, look at the dangers of rock and rap music. So, not to push back on that, but I have heard that before. I had This is with the time period where, like, Marilyn Manson was also being blamed for all this stuff. It like later comes out that these kids were like not a fan of this of these guys. They oh, actually wow. these guys were actually like I think their favorite artist was Insane Clown Posse, like which later on Insane Clown Posse gets a lot of like you know shit on for like for this down the line. But I think they only did that because like that was the obvious target. Like obviously you have fucking I just talked about like Mr. Lifto over here like. Marilyn Manson and Nine Inch Nails storing with the Jim Rose. Like, it was an easy target to, for them to pick on. Later on, it comes out that they were not a fan of these artists. Mm. and um, But they were a fan of Insane Clown Posse. And I'm not trying to blame Insane Clown Posse because Eric, our, one of our good buddies, is a huge Insane Clown Posse fan. And, like, that dude's a fucking scientist or whatever. He's <laughs> out there trying to find a, a cure for a fucking malaria or whatever. <laughs> and, like, like I, I don't know. I just... You know, I say what you will you know, about blaming music, and I know that, that was a hot thing for a while. Like, you got to blame music, like music and video games. Like, their big thing was fucking uh, Doom, the video game. Like, they were fans of that game. And, and I only know this because, like, I went on this huge deep dive on, on, uh, on, on that topic of the Columbine shooters, and I've thought about, like, pitching that as an idea. Like, I've wanted to do that. But I also think it's, like, very dark and very sad. And so, like, I'm always, like, I'm not, I don't want, like, yeah. it's fucking emotionally draining. So, I'm, like, I don't want to really do that. Um, but, um, but, uh, 
those kids were fucking douchebags. <laughs> like I just, I well, just that's wanna, yeah, that, that's that, that's uh, where I was gonna lead to. Where it's just like okay, <laughs> like everything that we just talked about, with, like with Trent, right? Yeah. Like with hesitation marks or whatever, right? Like there's chapters in your life where you feel like this, right? You do yeah. relate to that character or whatever. Yeah. But then you look at the life of Trent now, you know, at like what he's like 57 or whatever, right? Again, father of five. Yeah. Half of his Instagram is like him taking his fucking kids to Disneyland and shit, like in, with his hot ass fucking wife and shit. Yeah. You know, like like there's life after all of like the depression and addiction and stuff like that. Again, he went from being like a skinny little twerp to like this big buff dude, like you wouldn't want to fuck with, even at 57 and shit. So it's just yeah. like, to me, like. Looking like David Mc- Duchovny or whatever. <laughs> David Duchovny what, and shit. What was his name? The guy from X Files? Yeah, David, David Duchovny. Yeah, he fucking looks just like him, dude. Yeah. Put a side by side picture of him. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, like, it's, like, to me, like, those kids missed the whole picture kind of thing, you know? And, like, yeah. that's why I, I think if they were inspired by this album to commit fucking the murders of Columbine or whatever, they totally missed the whole point of the album. Yeah, I guess. I mean, that's a whole different conversation. I don't think, I don't think that that's, I don't think they, one, I don't think they, I think they would I know done, they weren't fans of it. I know they weren't fans of this style of music, and I know that they uh i don't know those those kids were you know one is like probably like a mental illness and like gun control like that (laughs) that's a whole different conversation but i think i I think even if they were (laughs) listening to pat boone and fucking shit like that they would have done the same thing i mean yeah i I think that they were stereotypical nerds i think people like made them sound like they were metalheads when they really weren't metalheads they were like fucking video game nerds Mm -hmm. and like making like home movies and like were huge into like making their own movies and they were really into violence like they liked the idea of violence and like you know bad parenting and like (laughs) Mm -hmm. but i don't know i mean like that that's a whole different thing i don't think i don't think people can can like I don't know. As far as missing the point, like, there, what is the point? Like, what's missing the point of? I think it's an album that's very open for interpretation, and that's one of the things I like. Oh, that, yeah. That's very beautiful about the album because there is no like, well, what was the point of it? Well, the the point of it is like, here's a story. You can do what you will with it, and like one of the things like to me, I have a, like a very like vision like when i i see you you brought up the spiral thing and that's one of the things i never really thought about that when when i listened to that album and but i think it's beautiful that you have like a visual interpretation of what it's supposed to be i have like visual interpretations of what like you know what i hear when i see this when i when i when i listen to this album and i think it's kind of cool that it's not you know uh Coheed and Camry <laughs> album that tells you like the storyline. It comes with the comic book to tell you like here's what happens and this happens and this happens. It's like I don't want that. I don't want to know. Like I want the fucking like mystery. I like the beauty. I like the filling in the blanks myself. I like the how did this end? Like it, you know, it's like the ending of Inception where like you don't know. It's like up for interpretation. I like the fact that the album is kind of like that. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I just I think it's I think it's beautiful. I think it's I think. Even the even the parts that I know Trent Reznor doesn't like, the big man with the gun and things like that, add to how beautiful it is because it's not perfect. Because it's like, because it's 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 created by Trent Reznor at you know age twenty four or whatever. Yeah. You know, like oh god, I wouldn't even want to know what I. <laughs> you know, it's like it's it's <laughs> at twenty four. It's extremely made. creative, but it still has the immaturity of a twenty four year old. You know, mm-hmm. so I don't know. I think it's amazing. A plus. Yeah, hundred percent classic album listen to it you'll probably if you're not a fan of this kind of music you might hate it at first but you know i guarantee you the more you listen to it 
the more you'll learn to love it. Like it's it's one of those. It is very much like an album. It only gets better the more times you listen to it. Yeah, yeah. I also like the fact that like people sample it now. Like there's a band called Girl Pusher that sampled Closer, and I'm like, I I played the sample version. I played the Girl Pusher song to one of my buddies. And he's like, this is fucking sick. And I was like, this is a, clearly a sample of Nine Inch Nails. He's like, I don't know who that is. Wow. But this is like dope as hell. We're, we're at that moment now, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, that's crazy that you don't know who Nine Inch Nails is. The band is getting sam- like obvious sample. But he's like, dude, this is like girl pusher thing is like yeah. amazing. But I'm sure like old school heads like fucking, you yeah. know, Steve Harvey, like when they listen to nothing but a G thing, they're like, oh, that's Leon Haywood. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah. who the fuck's Leon Haywood? You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, he's my plumber. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's wild. But it's, wild right. that we're, we're, it's wild that we're at that point. Now. Yeah, no, yeah. you're right. Yeah, but that's it. I'm sure we got a million other things that we can talk about um, about this album, but I just want to say, one of my favorite albums of all time. Glad you picked it as a topic, man. Yeah, it was a good one. I, I like this episode. Great album. If you haven't listened to it, 10 out of 10 album, in my opinion. 100%. Um, Change music. I mean, there's so much you can say about it. Yeah, man. Like, a lot of things, you know, I know we're getting kind of long on this episode, but, like, a lot of things were happening in the early 90s, you know, to mid-90s that were, like, obviously the death of Kurt Cobain, you know, that, like, kind of art rock was coming back with bands like um, like Sonic Youth and that sort of thing. It seemed like there were like so many moving parts. It was must have been a very exciting time to be a teenager in America. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So I'm jealous of people of that time period because like, I can imagine like, you know, one year fucking like Nirvana putting out an album, like fucking Dr. Dre's putting shit out, <laughs> like – like fucking the Sonic Youth album comes out, sounds completely different than everything else out. This comes out, this is like fuck, dude. Like yeah. in a in a span of like four or five years, it's like all was coming out. Yeah, it was like when Marvel was putting out like ten straight fucking classic movies all the time and shit. What a time yeah. to be alive, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's funny is, is this album debuts at number two behind Soundgarden and Super Unknown, which is another fuck, great album. Yeah, yeah. I think this album's better, but Super Unknown is oh, very, yeah. very good. I I totally agree with you on that, yeah. but. With that said, guys, if you have anything you want to talk to us about on the Downward Spiral or Nine Inch Nails in general, I know we were supposed to do it. Uh, it's funny, like the the people that come into our lives, um, Dave Moten, he wanted to do Year Zero, an album review on Year Zero, which is another great album. I know our buddy Eddie from the RBG podcast and Comedy Store Wrestling, uh, he wanted to do The Fragile. We will not do a track by track on The Fragile because that uh. is a double album. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's it's crazy to see like, you know, how many classic albums there is under the banner of Nine Inch Nails. So if you want to talk some shop about Nine Inch Nails, I know both myself and Art can spend all day talking about Nine Inch Nails, one of our mutual favorite bands of all time. Yeah, This is one of the few my computer wasn't even on for this shit. I thought I was going to need notes, but I didn't, I didn't have anything. <laughs> I, did, I only use my notes for the fucking like timestamp on yeah. that shit. But anyways, uh, if you want to talk shop with us about Nine Inch Nails, get us on all the social medias at Art and Jacob Do America, except for Twitter, we are at Art and Jacob Do A1, because goddamn son, that's just how a steak is done. Uh, if you want to support this podcast in any way whatsoever, guys, head on over to patreon.com slash Art and Jacob Do America. Uh, support us there, donate $1, $5, $6.66, uh, whatever, it, it doesn't matter, but it all goes to helping this podcast survive uh, the downward spiral. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but when you do, um, donate, you get a bonus episode every single week and nine times out of 10, those episodes are better than the actual episodes you're getting today for free. I think this uh, actual episode was better than the Patreon, but that Patreon was no slouch at all. 
uh, as we talk about collecting shit and, you know, having fun, you know, with all of that um, as well. So check us out on the Patreon. Uh, you'll get a bonus episode as well as access to 157 Patreons now. That's a whole other podcast Damn. into itself. So if you like us here, you'll love us over there. You just got to pay a dollar for, <laughs> for that shit. It's like slightly more racist. No, yeah. <laughs> truth social. You, yeah. you can buy your, your official truth social hat. Uh, but speaking of merchandise, guys, <laughs> head on over to truth social. No. More intense, more racist, more, yeah. more in your face. Yeah, fucking. Uh, <laughs> we drink Fagos. Oh, God. Uh, but if you want to support us in any other way, guys, follow the official website, artandjacobdoamerica.com. Follow the merch links. Uh, we currently have four designs up, uh, so check us out over there. Not so much to help us monetarily, as we probably see a couple cents for every purchase made over there, uh, but it does help uh, get the good word out. So when you're out in the world wearing an Art and Jacob Do America t-shirt, let's say you're at a Nine Inch Nails concert or whatever, right? Uh, that, that'd be weird. I'd probably wear one of my Nine Inch Nails shirts to a Nine Inch Nails concert, but you can wear an Art and Jacob Do America t-shirt to a Nine Inch Nails concert. Uh, Trent Reznor might see that, maybe Danny Lohner or... Let's say Aaron North rejoins uh, Nine Inch Nails. Oh whatever. yeah, friend you of the show. Him, okay. Yeah, he could, you know he'll see that. <laughs> They'll listen to our podcast and help increase our listener base, which will help us tremendously. So he you he are, actually wants to come on and uh, talk about some gangster rap here shortly. So I, I, I'm pitching the idea, dude. We should just go to L.A. and do that. Like do it like on the corner of Crenshaw and Slauson. Yeah, well, yeah. There's a nice little bus depot there now. It's not even hood anymore. And like yeah. there's like a fat burger across oh, the street. Oh, it's all gentrified. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's all. Gen- there's a hipster with like those curly Q mustaches yeah. and shit. We could totally do it down there. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, uh, support us there. If you want to hear other great podcasts, guys, head on over to our our network over at podbelly.com. Check out other great podcasts such as Hillbilly Horror Stories and Sofa King. Uh, but with that said, Art, I'm done. Time to eat some breakfast at yeah. 12 noon. Tell you why we move to Shadow of the That's all I got. All right. So goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. Good night.